Good afternoon, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Since late December 2021, a rare stellar sea eagle has been repeatedly sighted by hundreds of people on the Maine coast. The stellar sea eagle is significantly bigger than our beloved bald eagle, and its home range is very, very far away from Maine, in coastal Siberia, around the Sea of Okhotsk and the Kamchatka Peninsula, down to northern Japan and the Korean Peninsula. There are reportedly only about 4,000 stellar sea eagles on the planet, and they're listed as a vulnerable species on the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List of Threatened Species. This species, then, is extremely rare at a global scale. It lives nowhere near the main coast, and we know that normally it's a species that tends to stay close to home. But apparently not this individual bird. Starting back in August of 2020, birders noticed its presence in Alaska, which even there was considered a fairly unusual sighting. A few months later, in March of 2021, a raptor presumed to be the same eagle was sighted in Texas. And then in June, multiple confirmed sightings were reported all the way east in Quebec's Gaspé Peninsula. November in the Canadian Maritimes, December was Massachusetts, and then, to the great excitement of a large community of birders in the northeast U.S., the stellar sea eagle landed in Maine on December 30th, 2021, and continued to be sighted in the Georgetown to Booth Bay region until March 5th. Why has this stellar sea eagle been wandering the northern hemisphere? What do we know about its ecology and conservation? And how has its presence captured the imagination of seasoned birders, coastal residents, and a growing cadre of community scientists? These are the subjects of today's Coastal Conversations episode. But first, a note to our listeners, this show was pre-recorded on March 17th, and so we won't be taking any calls today. So let's jump right in. So um, today on Coastal Conversations, we are going to talk about the stellar sea eagle, that amazing bird that has um, made an appearance on the coast of Maine for several months now. I believe that the last sighting documented was March 5th, but I'll let you guys confirm that for me. Um, and I've got three people in the studio today who are going to help us understand all about the stellar sea eagle, why it might be in Maine, what it's been doing here, and what impact the presence of this highly unusual bird is having uh, in Maine in terms of our economy, um, the sort of community that's built around it, um, and any sort of other sort of impacts that have happened here in Maine. So let's start by having our guests introduce themselves, and then we'll jump right into the story of 
Maine's very own stellar sea eagle. Um, let's start with Doug. Tell us, a you know, just introduce yourself a little bit about who you are and a tiny connection to this eagle. Yeah, I'm Doug Hitchcock, the staff naturalist for Maine Audubon. Uh, so I work in Maine Audubon's education department and, you know, a fun thing kind of uh, uh, that I think of in, in my role uh, is really trying to connect people with nature and, and especially uh, I do that, you know, really through, through birds and rare birds definitely, you know, get a lot of people excited and to have what I would call the rarest bird in Maine is uh, a pretty phenomenal opportunity. So, uh, you know, I've been a birder for a long time and, and uh, always, you know, I get the most enjoyment out of getting other people to see cool birds. So, um, so here we go. Very cool. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I mean, thank you, Doug. And let's go with Jeff. Yes, uh, Jeff Wells here. I'm uh, Vice President of Boreal Conservation for the National Audubon Society. Um, I live in Maine um, and grew up in Maine. And um, so um, I've been sort of working in conservation fields uh, for, I guess, hard to believe, but the last maybe 40 years or something like that. So, but now uh, working on boreal conservation, which tends to focus on uh, work in, in, in Canada mostly, but but them still kind of following bird stuff everywhere, and including uh, this this bird that was in sort of in in the backyard from where I live. Great, thank you, Jeff. And Brent, you're our our uh, our own guest from a field like the stellar sea eagle. So tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you're, you're connected to this story. What brought you to this story? Sure, yeah, so I'm Brent Pease. I am uh, an assistant professor in the forestry program at Southern Illinois University, where I teach classes uh, on wildlife monitoring, forest economics, uh, data management analysis, and graduate courses in spatial ecology and landscape ecology. I work across mammals and birds and herps uh, here in Southern Illinois and beyond. And um, I, yeah, as you mentioned, I probably couldn't be farther from uh, the stellar sea eagle, but um, you know, I did my PhD work down in North Carolina, did my undergraduate work out in Colorado, but I am on wildlife Twitter and I do follow, I'm a birder and I'm on eBird. And um, you know, we start getting these reports of the stellar sea eagle and people sending, submitting pictures and posting information about this. And you know, even heard about it. It's been here, which I'm sure we'll get into, but it's been here for a while. And this is kind of interesting. And I talk about these type of topics in my economics courses about non-market goods or things we can't put a price tag to. So conservation issues. And I'm like, well, this sounds like a really interesting study. I know people are flocking to Maine. And I just started to kind of put my feelers out there to see if people are interested in it. And and here I am. There was a lot of interest and. Um, that's how I got involved with the stellar seagull. It's just kind of not related. I haven't seen the bird, but it's an interesting thing to think about and, and uh, study. That's great. And we'll get into the nature of your study of the stellar seagull um, in, in detail in a little bit. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So for uh, the listeners who may not know about the stellar seagull, maybe one of you, uh, Jeff or Doug, could, could give us an overview of its story. 
most of our listeners, most everyone in Maine uh, has a really good fix on what a bald eagle looks like and the basics of the ecology and the life cycle and the wanderings of bald eagles. Can, can one of you um, just sort of give us a, paint a picture? How does the stellar sea eagle compare to the bald eagle, whether it's visually or a little bit about its ecology? Doug, how about you? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the thing that probably stands out the most is uh, certainly the size of this bird. Um, it, it essentially just, you know, <laughs> it makes our bald eagles look so small. Um, I had dropped everything. When it was seen down in Massachusetts, uh, I was doing one of the Christmas bird counts in Southern Maine. Um, so a, a horrible birder I am, I abandoned my posts uh, for that, that Christmas count to uh, race down to Massachusetts. Um, so we got to see it that uh, essentially that single day it was uh, at least being seen down there. And one of my favorite experiences with it was we had, you know, a spotting scope set up. We're looking at it from pretty far away and it was sitting in the same tree as some other bald eagles, some immature bald eagles, which are still full size. And as people would, you know, come up throughout the time we were there, you know, it's such a fun experience as, as people arrive, you know, they're anxious and, and, you know, just, is it still there? And you're, oh, look in my scope, check this out. And they'd look at it, you know, they'd be relieved. And, and after a few seconds, it, a common thing was people would say like, well, what is that other bird sitting with it? And it was a bald eagle. And it's like so funny to me that people like weren't even recognizing the bald eagles because they were essentially dwarfed by this, this you know, much larger uh, sea eagle sitting next to it. So it's it's got a lot of size. Um, some of the field marks, you know, uh, might be similar to folks like it's got this big white tail, but instead of, uh, you know, a, a typical fan tail like bald eagles have, stellar sea eagles uh, tail is more wedge shaped. So that's pretty unique. It's got these, um, these broad white shoulders on it. And then, of course, our bald eagles as adults have white heads. Uh, this one's got a, a all dark head. And then a just absolutely massive beak on it. The bill is just huge, um, thick from the base all the way out to the tip, uh, and just kind of glows this yellow-orange color. Um, it's, it's such a kind of iconic species. Like there's a number of, um, you know, raptors of the world or, or, you know, random books that, uh, you might pull off a library shelf and just, you know, flip through. And, uh, like there's so many kids books on raptors that like has stellar seagull, like on the cover because it is just this kind of iconic, uh, eagle. Very cool. Um, and uh, Jeff, I, kn I know that you are an expert in the boreal zones of the world. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us first what that word boreal means, and then um, what, what we know of the sort of home habitat of the stellar sea eagle. What, what's it like in sort of the Siberia uh, Sea of, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of that sea, the Sea of Okhotsk maybe? What's it like there? Even if you haven't been there, what do you imagine it to be like from what you know? Yeah, well, to start off with about uh, the boreal, uh, boreals from um, the god uh, Borealis, is, which was the god of the north, you know, so um, 
Um, it's a term for the northern forest that sort of forms a, a green halo around the top of the world just below the Arctic and here in the US sandwiched between the uh, the prairies in the in the west and the, the Great Lakes and and the, the mixed hardwood forest we have we have here in, in Maine. Um, so it's one of the world's largest um, biomes and um, and it, it does stretch all the way around the world and the Siberian part of it is, is one of the largest parts and the Kamchatka Peninsula area, um, which is one of the strongholds of the nesting grounds for stellar sea eagle is, is, is one of the um, special places within the boil on the, the marine side of the Siberian side. And I can't uh, claim to be an expert at all, but in, in the boreal of that region, um, but um, but it but the boreal around the world has many similarities in you know the families and genus of, of trees. Uh, so the the trees that you would see there, you know, the coniferous trees, spruces and and um, larches and and um, pines and things like that. They may be different species, but uh, have very look very similar. So that that area has you know a very similar look to. Um, parts of, of Canada and, and parts of Maine. Uh, Maine has boreal habitat in it, even if it's not technically classified as part of the boreal biome per se, but, um, but we have obviously, you know, spruces and, and pines and firs and, um, um, and, and a lot of the same um, types of, of habitat, especially along the coast where this bird is, is hanging out. So I think from the perspective of, of this bird, the, the ecosystem is probably quite similar in many ways to what it's, you know, used to um, over there. One, one interesting note about the, the tracking of the bird across the continent, um, you know, people may wonder how you would know that this is the same bird, uh, you know, really good point. And of course, you know, today with, when we try to study migration of individual birds, we use, you know, fancy technology where you fix some sort of a transmitter or or some or some device on the bird to to track it um you know day to day and even hour by hour in some cases and this bird obviously doesn't have that so uh, how do we do that well um the the cool thing about especially rare birds is people tend to take a lot of pictures of them to show you know that they can prove that it was there and so in in doing that they've been able to notice particular features in the plumage that um, are the same and are very unlikely to be um, features that would be in different individuals, you know, sort of irregularities in the border of the white on the top of the wing between the white and the brown. And so most of the pictures, except for the Texas one, um, all show that. So the, the Texas one, you know, it, it fits into the timeline, but we don't actually have definitive proof that that was um, the same bird. You know, obviously it fits into to the, the pattern. On, on the other hand, there, there have been occasional um, escapes of cellar sea eagles from zoos and, and potentially private collections unknown to people in places like Mexico or something like that. So there's the, the, the slight possibility of that. But this particular bird, because it was showed up in Alaska, it had that same wing um, pattern um, that was documented in the east here, you know, would seem to clearly be a bird that was a vagrant from, on its own from the original Siberian range. Um, let's talk a little bit about 
what the heck it's doing here? <laughs> what, what causes, um, I mean, I know it's all, it's hard to know, and it could be so many different things that, that brought it here. What are some of the theories in the scientific community um, about why species might do this, why they might be so far away from their home range? What's, what are some of the reasons for that? Well, I, I can uh, jump in for a little bit and others can add more, but, um, you know, it, it is true that in the, in the birding world, the vagrant birds, birds that are, show up far away from where they are normally at are the, you know, are, are what birders live for, you know, that they, they, they just want to see that, that rarity. And, and, um, you know, I think some of that is just because it, th there's just something about this idea of connecting with something that is far away and that you know you might you might have imaginings of of what it's like in this exotic faraway place or you know you might imagine you may someday get to visit may you know but you probably won't you know but you but to see this visitor from that place you know um there's just something that is is just i don't know just alluring about it. I know as a, as a kid, when I was first getting into birding, I felt that way, just even about, you know, the, the migrant birds that were passing through the backyard, or they might come down for the winter, and, you know, seeing a bird that might come down for the winter, but then would, then in the summer would go up and spend time with polar bears, you know, and, you know, I sitting in my little house in Bangor, Maine, you know, I wasn't going to get to see a polar bear, but just to see that bird that I saw down by the river, the Iceland gull or something, you know, it might be going back and being near near a polar bear just it felt like a connection so you know that that's that's where the start of why birders are so interested in vagrancy i think and um or at least part of it maybe other people have other reasons but the reasons why these birds do it are are quite varied i mean some of it is related to just um things like um weather conditions that during migration um, birds get swept up and go, um, you know, kind of get swept into a weather system and get pulled away in a different direction from where they intended to go. Sometimes it's thought to be because there's a mix up in the orientation that could be related to some something in, in the bird's brain or, or, or chemistry so that it goes north instead of south or south instead of north. Um, in, in the broad picture, evolutionarily, people think that there are always these sort of outliers that kind of are always exploring the, the, the edges of, of the range and the new places so that um, there are always some part of the population that could adapt to change. And then of course, in the times of climate change, you know, that's gonna maybe be particularly important for species to survive is, you know, these, these outlying individuals that kind of test the, test the edges. Um, and um, um, the, a lot of times they're young birds, you know, in their first year will will go further. So a lot of the vagrant birds people find in Maine or any other place tend to be, you know, the birds in their in their first year. Um, and we assume that most of the time, most of these individuals die, you know, I mean, that's the sad part. <laughs> they go, they, you know, when you're out there exploring the new worlds, um, when humans did it, the same thing happened, you know. Um, um, and so that's what probably does happen. But occasionally some don't. And that is you know, the species that may change, um, that may help change the pattern of what that species 
overall population does if more and more birds find success in moving to a new place and, and things like that. So there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of different ways of kind of looking at it from the um, a, a sort of approximate cause to an ult ultimate cause and that, and that sort of thing too. So. If you're just tuning in, that was Jeff Wells of National Audubon here on Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, we're talking with our three guests about the recent presence in Maine of a rare stellar sea eagle, a bird native to far eastern Russia. Also on today's show are Doug Hitchcox from Maine Audubon and Brent Pease, an assistant professor for wildlife conservation and management at Southern Illinois University. Just a reminder that this show was pre-recorded on March 17th, so we're not taking any calls today. I had just asked Brent to share some examples of other species who, like the stellar sea eagle, might choose to travel very far from their home range. Here's Brent. Yeah, um... I don't know if you all remember, um, I think it was 2011, so at least 10 years ago, there was a big story about a cougar who ended up in Connecticut. So you remember that story? Um, it started in the Black Hills of South Dakota, right? And this is this individual who was a juvenile male, probably a year, year and a half old, and it traversed quite a distance. They think maybe it traveled two to 5,000 miles overall on its trip, but it went from the Dakotas, uh, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, over through um, Michigan, of course, and eventually, and unfortunately, as Jeff uh, suggested, it, it was uh, hit on the road in Connecticut. So a lot of these journeys do end uh, poorly for the individual, but um, all that to say is th this was very normal for this species. You know, this was a dispersing young male, and that's quite that's quite common and normal for this species. The individual was leaving its home range, and it was in search of love. It was looking for another individual, uh, to put it. Um, you know, it was looking to mate somewhere. So it was going to try to establish a new territory. You know, cougars have largely been extirpated from the eastern United States, and we had this individual kind of wandering. Uh, in search of another uh, uh, another individual or a mate. So, you know, much uh, along with along the lines of what much of Jeff said, you know, this was a, a very normal thing for this species to do. Uh, there were suitable conditions for this species where it was traveling, um, but it was a natural thing. It was a dispersing young male looking to establish, uh, potentially establish a new population or at least mate outside of its home range. Um, so yeah, you know, this, this happens across species, across taxa. Um, and uh, it's all always interesting and fun to think about whenever it does happen. And if I could just add, like an, an interesting part of this is, uh, as, as these points have been made, this one's a bit of an outlier from a lot of our knowledge of vagrancy because most vagrants tend to at least be migratory species that were you know, already prone to some sort of movement and essentially, you know, either move too far or yes, got blown off course or, or something like that. Uh, Stellar Seagull, you know, it has a little migratory shift from, you know, maybe from up into Russia, spending the winters down uh, into northern Japan. Um, but it's not a long distance migrant. Like we, we kind of expect vagrancy a, a amongst uh, those longer distance migrants. So this is a bird that has very little like pattern of vagrancy 
Um, obviously, it's the first one to ever uh, show up here. And then it's also an adult. Uh, we can tell by the plumage because it's got the uh, kind of dark body, the, the all, all white tail. Uh, it's at least three years old. So uh, again, like as, as Jeff said, like it's, it's a lot of uh, younger birds and especially young males. Um, and, and kind of in that same idea, folks from Maine right, might remember in 2018, we had a great black hawk show up in Portland. Um, that was another, you know, kind of first time, <laughs> certainly it's ever been seen in Maine, but it was the first time when it had been seen in the U.S. that that same bird had been seen in Texas earlier in the year, and we matched that through that same pattern as Jeff was talking about matching up uh, the feathers from photos. Um, and what's interesting is that bird, you know, unfortunately it, it it did perish. Uh, it, it was found um, dead, had, had, well, it was found alive, um, taken into rehab, but uh, its, its legs had been uh, frostbitten. So th this tropical hawk trying to survive Maine's winter, clearly not a good survival technique for, uh, for that species. But interestingly, like the stellar sea eagle is, I don't think it's having any trouble here. We, people have been seeing it, catching food, and like also, you know, it, it's, interesting to look at a map, um, the latitude. Um, if you look up the, the latitude of um, Hokkaido, which is like where most people, most birders, if you're going to see a stellar seagull, you're probably going to Japan, taking a, a boat to Hokkaido and then another boat out to the ice flows where these eagles are feeding on fish. That's almost the exact same latitude as Booth Bay, where this bird had had been seen for a while. So, like it, you know, it's pretty close. It's it's doing all right for the area that it's in. Yeah, and Brent, tell us a little bit about your study. So, you are endeavoring to get a sense of the economic impact of the stellar sea eagle in Maine. Tell us a little bit more about sort of what you're trying to ascertain and how you're going about it. Yeah, sure. So we're carrying out a study, as you mentioned, uh, focused on the economic impact um, of the stellar sea eagle. Uh, mostly, you know, mostly focused on uh, Maine because that seems to be where it has spent so much time, and so many people were able to uh, plan a trip and actually start to figure out how they're going to get out to see the bird. But we have it opened up to uh, North America in general. But we're just interested in, yeah, how much money uh, is this? this event or this bird generating uh, for local economies and bird conservation uh, more in general. So um, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, this is kind of at the cross section of the things or the topics that I uh, teach on here at SIU. So I teach on wildlife management and conservation. I teach on forest economics. And here we have this bird uh, that's clearly not a game species, but it has some value to people beyond just its existence value. And people are valuing it so much that they are booking flights from California, Vegas, wherever they might be traveling across the country to come see this bird. Um, so we kind of wanted to try to quantify this impact that it was having uh, on these local communities. Um, that's the big picture of, of the project. Uh, we hope that the information, you know, has importance for Policymakers, land managers, bird conservation more generally um, is kind of the, the big picture idea. 
I wish I had some numbers for you right now. I, cur I currently don't, we're still processing that, but that's the general approach that we're taking with this problem. Yeah, that's that's great, Brent. That's really interesting. And then presumably once you have all this data, people like Doug and Jeff can use this data and, and, and it can support their efforts towards conservation. And I was wondering, Jeff, if you could talk a little bit about how this kind of um, sort of ecosystem services, if I'm using that word correctly, um, sort of information can help you in your work world as you're, you're involved in all kinds of um, conservation work. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, um, I think even just from starting off with the idea that um, you need people to see a value in why they should be interested in in conservation, you know, and um, in in along the main coast, you know, that this is uh, an issue that is um, you know ongoing in lots of places, you know, controversies as to you know whether something should be conserved or not, and you know, I've been on the board of the the Booth Bay Region Land Trust, you know, in past years, and I've I've heard some of the controversies of you know local town people and who feel that the land trust is saving too much land and taking it off to tax rolls, for example, you know, and this is a problem you hear about every, everywhere. So just trying to show that this investment, in, instead of thinking of it as taking it off the tax roll, you're actually investing in something that's bringing more revenue in to the town, you know, um, is, is, is key. And so um, anything that we can show that, that supports this, that, you know, the, the land trust itself has done some work to try to show the value in all the people who come just for hiking and passive recreation um, and it's and it's a large number when you add in something like this bird and it's sighting you know the numbers just skyrocketed for at least for you know the period it's it's been there um, i know just from you know my anecdotal um, observations of going down you know to to see or look for the bird and you know i know down at um, in in georgetown um, when I did see it, I, I actually have only seen it once out of the several times I've gone looking for it. But, you know, getting to the, the spot where there's a, um, uh, an inn and the innkeeper was basically letting everybody use his property, it was closed, but he kind of saw it as an opportunity to, for people to see this really great place, you know, so he was being really letting people use the parking lot and 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 we watched the, the eagle from from his porch and he was kind of talking to everybody and you know that was just a, one person's example of how he was kind of seeing this as an economic opportunity he was starting to talk to some people about the ideas of hosting a, a, a birding club to come up from Massachusetts or whatever you know different ideas and um, you know I know in, in another point down in Booth Bay you know when there were literally hundreds of people all over the roads and all in these different places when we were down there and um, you know, we stopped at the at the convenience store to get some gas on the way home, and you know, I saw all, all these same people that I had seen down at the, uh, you know, at the at watching for the bird down in the harbor, all you know, gassing up their cars and buying snacks and everything. This this one little convenience store just getting all of this extra business, you know. So just the, those little those little things like that. Um, so I think you know, a lot of times. It, the businesses might not be as aware as as some of them are as to why they're getting all this business and and even the long-term effects of this will be interesting because i heard so many people comment on how, saying things like even if they didn't see the bird boy this place is so beautiful i'm going to be coming back up here this summer you know so it was almost like you know the tourism department's you know greatest opportunity just to 
bringing lo loads of people up to see the beauty and specialness of this place. So, you know, all of that just to just to make that case for why, you know, conservation is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously we all often make the case for it re related to ecosystem services or protecting bird populations because that's what we particularly care about. And there's lots of people who will buy into it for that reason. But there's others who need need a bigger economic uh, reason for it. And this, you know, a, a study like that really helps to, to really showcase that connection. Yeah, to, uh, just to follow up on that, Jeff, you know, for some reason, um, you know, when we think about species declining or species, vulnerable species, or even species extinction, for some reason, something like that is, you know, the term gone forever isn't quite tangible enough for people. So even though it might be uncomfortable for some individuals, really assigning some economic value or something that's really tangible to most humans, you know, five, $10, $30,000 is really often what it takes to motivate uh, policymakers, land managers, bird, you know, conservation agencies. So, um, you know, we can tell everyone that, for example, this place on the main coast was just supporting this uh, species that's listed by the IUCN uh, as a vulnerable species. It's declining. Doug's already mentioned several times it's a rare species. And, you know, that might not be tangible to people who are outside of who don't pay much attention to wildlife or wildlife conservation, but saying, well, actually, this bird in this area generated X number of dollars, and we can use that money uh, when we're trying to make decisions about alternative land use scenarios. Should we, as Jeff started out, should we have this in a, uh, some conservation easement or some protection status, or should it be used in some tax generating purpose, but we have, eventually we'll have some number that we can say, well, we think it, it estimated or generated about this much money um, just in this short period of time. And that ignores many of the, the long-term effects that Jeff was trying to suggest or mention. And, and you know, that's some of the questions that we asked in that study is almost like, you know, if you went to see the bird in Maine, how likely are you to come back just based off of this experience? And, um, you know, at most people were just like, we are very likely to, we've never been here before, we're very likely to come back. We asked questions about um, while you were there visiting the Cellar Seagull, did you happen to book a tour for the next coming summer for Atlantic puffins? And we had several individuals who said, yes, we did do that. And we would not have done that if we had not been here for the Eagle. So I do agree and think that it's gonna have long-term effects uh, for, for uh, economic impacts in that region. And I hope that it can be some fuel for the fire of wildlife conservation uh, and land management decisions down the line. It really seems that as, a, you know, the bird in and of itself is such a unique thing, but then sort of the ripple effect that its presence has had. Doug, I, I think I saw that you hosted with some of your colleagues at Maine Audubon that you hosted a webinar, for example, about the Stellar Seagull. And I think someone told me you had something like seven or 800 people on your webinar who were, had just come to to hear about it. Um, so what, as, as someone who's working with the public every day, what are, what are you hearing from people who have gone to see it and how, how sort of the frenzy of excitement that people have around this bird? And also, am I correct that March 5th was the last time that we have a documentation of it on the coast of Maine? Correct. So March, March 5th, um, and I, I'll always put the asterisk or the, the kind of caveat on there of like um, Maine Audubon, I, I, I started a blog post to basically be the place for people to see like where are the updates, you know, maps all the locations and that sort of thing. And we are fairly strict about the, the observation needs to be documented. 
essentially verifiable in some way. So um, March 5th was the last time someone took a photo of it is a good way to, to say it. So anyways, it was uh, pretty amazing. Like we decided after a few weeks to just host the Zoom event um, with my colleague, Nick Lund, um, to just, just talk about the bird and kind of get information out there. Uh, it was around seven or 800 people that came. And I think we're about to hit 8,000 views on that video on, on YouTube, on the recording, which is pretty amazing. Um, the number that I really like because it, it really blows kind of uh, any precedence off, off uh, uh, our past attempts with this is is looking at that blog. So we just, you know, on our website, mainaudubon.org, it is just a, a page on there. And, you know, we, we use uh, WordPress so we can see, we get all the, you know, analytics from it. And just in January, so with, with one month of the bird being seen and maintaining that blog, we had 80, over 80,000 unique views, which is incredible. As a, you know, an, another kind of spinoff of this was knowing that there would be this much interest. Uh, the thing I did, um, essentially, uh, the second day I was being seen was set up a GroupMe account. So GroupMe is a uh, one of the essentially messaging apps. Uh, WhatsApp might be the more popular one. We went with GroupMe because it's very easy for people to just join and immediately start posting or receive posts. Um, but we've had thousands of people come and go from that, that group. It, it still has uh, just over 3,000 people that are still like actively uh, receiving posts from that group. And, um, and there's still people out every single day looking for it. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of underappreciate how birdie maine is in the winter so hearing from folks that um you know oh i got to see Razorbill and common myrrh those were life birds for you know the first time they had ever seen one so like picking getting to see other new things that they you know probably didn't even expect to see an old friend's mom from upstate new york who's like a very casual birder she's like you know what i'm i'm doing it i'm gonna drive all the way out there um, and for her, she unfortunately didn't see it, but got to see loons in the winter and loons look incredibly different. Uh, and they're on salt water, like not what people expect. And I had this wonderful conversation with her where she was just like, was like, wow, you know, I, the species that I know that nests near me, she's like, I have this whole new appreciation for like how they are now like surviving in, in the winters and they look so different. And that was like, uh, that stuck with me as kind of one of the cooler um uh experiences that i've heard from someone who like they didn't see the eagle they you know didn't get you know even a life bird or, or for whatever that's worth um but still like got to uh learn and appreciate like something from from birds and and it's a absolutely beautiful place to uh to have to go spend some time so yeah really nice I'll, I'll quickly add that I was one of those lucky thousand to be on Doug and Nick's Zoom webinar. And I actually just put it like on our phone over dinner. So my mom, who is not a birder, uh, got to sit in and listen to the webinar. And my four-year-old was on the call and my wife was there. So 
It was fantastic. We had a lot of fun listening to it. And if you have not heard or were not there attending live, I think it'd be worth going to the look up the link on the YouTube to find this webinar. That's great, Brent. And and Doug, are you able to uh, tell us how listeners might be able to catch that webinar? Yeah, it's it's on Maine Audubon's YouTube page. So if you go to youtube.com slash Maine Audubon, um, that'd be a good way. You can go to maineaudubon.org and on the homepage, we still have, uh, it's it's getting a little lower on the page the longer the eagle's around, but there's still a, a, a link to that to that blog post. So you can help bump our numbers up there. And of course, there's a link to the uh, to that recording right on that page. If you're just tuning in, that was Doug Hitchcock, staff naturalist at Maine Audubon here on Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. We're talking today about the rare stellar sea eagle that's been sighted repeatedly in the Booth Bay region over the first couple months of 2022. In addition to talking today with Doug Hitchcock of Maine Audubon, we're joined by Jeff Wells, who's the Vice President for Boreal Conservation at National Audubon, and Brent Pease, who's Assistant Professor of Wildlife Conservation and Management at Southern Illinois University. Reminder, we're not taking any calls today as we pre-recorded this show on March 17th, 2022. Um, I'm curious with, with this sort of intense interest that this one bird is triggering, um, this intense interest in birding as a whole that is, that's being contributed to, is I'm curious to hear you guys talk a little bit about the opportunity for citizen science and the role for citizen science in, and, and maybe um, one of you can, can explain a little bit about what citizen science is for our listeners who may not have participated in any citizen science projects um, and how, how the sort of an everyday person who is out birding might be able to contribute to ecological data that is then useful for folks like you to, you know, work on the protection of various different bird species. Um, I'm sure that all three of you have some thoughts related to these topics, and I'd like to hear from each of you. I'll, I'll start. I know Doug has a particular um, project he will want to bring up here, but then I won't, so I won't mention that one. But citizen science or in, in National Ottawa, we've been starting to call them community science um, projects, are ways that just um, any anybody can contribute to adding um, ecological knowledge to to some um, some database of information, and there's and there's lots of lots of different ways to do that. And um, Audubon's Christmas Bird Count is kind of one of the more well-known ones. It's been around for about a hundred years for people to um, get involved in in counting birds in a period of two weeks before and after the the Christmas holiday time and um, in kind of an organized um, fashion with, that has a, a local organizer and things like that. But there's lots of ways people can get involved in things that are even simpler, like um, um, the Great Backyard Bird Count, which just took place in February, uh, where people just count any kind of any birds they see, or, or, or eBird, which is one of the ways people have been tracking the, the eagle and its whereabouts. Um, and you can, and it's, it's a database that is kept for the entire world of anybody, anybody's observations of birds. You can put them in in various ways, just ebird.org. Um, and 
you know, there's there's lots of lots of others. Um, um, if people are thinking about other taxa, the iNaturalist is is one I love to use. Um, you can put in your photos of plants and insects and any living creature you don't even know what it is, and and post it up there and um, and find out what it is usually, and and it goes into a a, a database and there, there's dozens of other sorts of things like that, but um, it is a great way uh, to contribute. And just one last thing I'd say sort of related to that is that the publicity around this bird has has really um, been so great that I, I've been having people just come up to me that I know from other walks of life who don't have any, or at least never expressed any interest in birds. They, they happen to know that I, you know, I, that I'm connected with the bird world sort of. So they, that's why they tell me about it, but they come up to me and they ask, start asking me questions about it. Um, quite a few people who had never been on a bird trip for anything in their whole lives, but they went down to see, to try to see this bird, you know? And, um, and so it sparked something in, in so many people out there that, you know, you have to think there's going to be kind of an exponential growth of more, even more interest, at least in, in Maine here from, um, you know, the footprint of this, the event of this bird being here, and it's going to be kind of interesting. And, you know, we're lucky we have Maine Audubon here as a way to, to help foster that interest and in a lot of its different programs and Audubon chapters and things like that. But I really do think it's like, even just thinking about it beyond the economic part of it, but just like it fosters this growth and an interest in a really exciting way. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that. Um, as you mentioned, Ali, I think we're all uh, involved in citizen science in some way or another, but you know, it is just quite basically some public involvement in any aspect of the scientific process. And, and usually uh, with citizen science, that means it's, it mostly falls in the, in the world of data collection. And uh, for the wildlife world, uh, as Doug, or excuse me, as Jeff mentioned, eBird, iNaturalist, uh, there are other databases as well, but um, GBIF, GBIF being one of the kind of main uh, repositories, it is a, it's a digital voucher. And we have a time and a place of some species occurrence. So we know through time, and you know, this, this is old, I mean, this is, we've been doing this a long time in museums, right? We have these museum specimens, we know when and where hopefully the individual specimen was collected, but now we have these digital vouchers of individuals saying, hey, I saw this bird here, or hey, I saw this cave salamander here at this time uh, and place. And that information can be used uh, and is used to look at um, this distribution or changes in distribution of species across the globe, changes in relative or absolute abundance of species and wildlife across the globe. I mean, uh, Jeff mentioned several times eBird. eBird puts out some amazing products about where birds are, how many there probably are, which type of environmental features are they associated with, when are they going to be in some given place. Uh, it's really wild information that um, has happened. And that's kind of what citizen science has done. It has drastically change the scale at which we can start to think about wildlife conservation and management issues. I mean, it is a global topic now. And we have, you look at maps from iNaturalist or GBIF or eBird of the, of the observation records, and it, it dots every place on the globe. It's wild. Um, but, you know, even if you're not involved in wildlife, I mean, I'm guessing there's some interest in wildlife if they're listening to the show, but, you know, citizen science is across, is across disciplines. Uh, for example, every single morning, at 7 a.m., I walk out to my mailbox and I record the precipitation 
So I, I'm involved in this community collaborative rain, hail and snow uh, science project where we observe all sorts of pre precipitation. That information is then used to validate meteorological models and predict, uh, predict severe weather events. Uh, my wife, she works for the Citizen Science Association uh, that does all things citizen science. Um, and you can find topics across the board. So, you know, you can go to citizenscience.org and learn all about citizen science as a whole if you've never heard of it. But it's a lot of fun. I do a soundscape project here in Southern Illinois uh, using, citizens, using citizens to collect data, uh, mostly focused on uh, bird distribution and abundance. So um, there's lots of things to get involved in if this is interest, if of interest to people, but it's a really powerful approach to science. And I think it gives a lot of people a lot of um, joy and satisfaction uh, for contributing to some bigger picture. That's great. Thanks, Brent. And, and Doug? Yeah, and I'll just add, uh, so in Maine right now, I would argue probably one of our largest uh, citizen or community science projects that's that's been undertaken in a while uh, is the Maine Bird Atlas. And this is a project by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife uh, that's basically uh, trying to map where uh, birds are, are breeding and wintering in Maine. So back in 19, from 78 to 83, there was an atlas effort done that kind of gave us a good baseline. And now we're essentially trying to update those um, with, with a, actually a much finer scale because we're, we're so much better equipped to collect a lot more data. But um, uh, so there, we have this atlas going on right now. Uh, we've added this wintering portion to it. So while this stellar steagle showed up in Maine, uh, it was kind of interesting to see uh, <laughs> there were um, a, a, essentially a, a ton of data was collected, but all about one bird. <laughs> um, you know, awesome to see. I, I think there had been 12, um, there had been 1200 records of the stellar seagull reported by the end of January, if I remember right, like just in eBird, which is kind of funny to think that, okay, that's just one species, uh, or, or excuse me, that, that one, one individual now represented that many times. Um, this can all be controlled for. So like, it's not, it's not a, a problem. Um, an interesting thing, like we, we have the state broken up into what we call blocks. That, that's our survey size, They're essentially nine square miles. And we're trying to get our volunteers to spend about three hours um, in the first half of winter, three hours in the second half of winter and re report what birds they see. So with that six hours of effort in each block, we consider it complete uh, to oversimplify it a bit. Uh, there's essentially two blocks that the stellar seagull has been seen in. And we're now, we're over 1400 hours of effort that's been <laughs> uh, spent in that. So there is this funny aspect of like, we look at and we're like, wow, like imagine if these people would just like, spread out a little bit, <laughs> maybe visit some other blocks like on your way to or, or uh, after you you see the eagle. Um, but, you know, it is, it's awesome to see that people are, you know, still collecting data there. It's, it's actually really fun. This will be a great side project for someone. We know there's so many more species that are seen. So whatever that species accumulation curve looks like, once you've got 1400 hours of effort, you've probably detected every single bird that's there. Now let's compare that to a neighboring flock that only had 
six hours of effort and how many fewer birds are there despite like the habitats being the same like what what could be there and the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say on this topic at least is um as has kind of been been shared but a, a common thing that you hear birders talk about like what motivated them to become a birder how did they get into it and people often have what they call a spark bird that was like the spark that you know ignited the interest and, and got them interested and i think the the stellar seagull is going to be a spark bird for tons of people that's such a great great image to think of it as the spark bird and or bird and um Amazingly, we've we've been chatting for an hour, um, and I have so many more questions for you, um, but we don't have time for them. So I'm just going to ask each of you if you have sort of any any closing thoughts, uh, things that you would like people to know about this particular bird, the stellar seagull that's in Maine, or or sort of what you what you hope it may inspire uh, in in the coming future. I'll start and kind of reiterate that point that you know. I, I hope it's a spark bird for a ton of people. I know a number of people who have uh, literally, you know, come to Maine Audubon and bought binoculars after it. Uh, we sold a, a couple spotting scopes because when it was first being seen, it had to, it, it was basically sitting way out on islands. And if you didn't have a scope, um, it was really hard to see. And that was one of the nicest things in the community was seeing people like sharing scopes and, and uh, kind of enabling uh, everyone who was going to to get to see it. And if there's a, a, a closing one or two points to make, the most common kind of funny questions that people always have to ask are, do we think it's mating with a bald eagle? Um, because there is this one like obscure record from Alaska, which I don't even want to get into. I don't think it's <laughs> mating with a, a bald eagle here. Um, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl, you can't tell. Um, despite everyone calls it Stella has become the, the nickname of it. Uh, and I thought I had one more. There are sorry, this, the, the, the FAQs just uh, always come in, but um, we don't know what it is. We, we don't know where it's gonna go from here. Maybe that's, where is it now? Where is it going? Great. Yeah, you know, as I kind of started out when I, when I introduced myself, I'm not involved. I'm not in Maine. I'm, I'm very disconnected from, from your community out there. But my bigger picture is, you know, I hope something like this, I mean, there was this was covered across the country on major media outlets. And if at the very least it can do is just spark some interest in uh, wildlife generally and, and, you know, observing wildlife. And I think that is incredibly value, valuable for it. And even if you can't get that plane ticket from Las Vegas and go out to Maine to see the Stellar Seagull, just go burden in your backyard because that is a lot of fun as well. And there's a lot of interest and enjoyment in something you can get just looking at the birds in their backyard. Great. Thank you, Brent. And Jeff, any parting thoughts? Well, it's sort of follow up on what uh, what Brent and Doug have said, I guess, but the, you know, the, the community that um, was sort of enabled it or you know brought together around this bird was was really fun and, and cool we you know when when my wife and i've gone down to look for it um um you know it's been just as much fun just being around this these people and talking to them and meeting new people you know and, and many, you know a number of times we you know we didn't see the bird but we just kind of enjoyed 
we vote we enjoyed the experience of having a good reason to go down to someplace on the main coast you know and just spend a part of a weekend doing that but then just you know meeting people and just seeing all the different ways that they're interested and where they're from and just it's, it's just fascinating and, and fun and it's a really cool cool community so so i think that's one of the fun things that something like this happens just to bring that community together and to learn and share and, and make it make it grow um but i also think as 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 both of um, these guys have said already that um along with it being sort of a spark bird for people i hope it's also um something that that sparks a, an interest in whether it's maybe um some young person who might decide to go into biology and, and and you know thinks up some questions about why is the bird here where is it going what's it doing or even thinks about what's it what's its situation what's the situation of the species in the Kamchatka Peninsula you know and maybe you know wants to figure out more about that and and becomes somebody who wants to study that bird or some other bird somewhere but you know just opens up all these wonderful mysteries and amazing uh questions about the natural world that are are so fun to explore and you know just hope it just engages more people even if they're not bird watchers or whatever but engages them in some way whether it's to become a, a student of birds uh, to get more involved to support an organization that helps um you know protect the environment um you know there, there's there's lots of ways but i do i do hope it's sort of a it's it's a spark in 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 the biggest sense of the word for many people Thank you so much. Um, this has been just an incredibly interesting hour. And like I said, I have so much more questions for you, but we'll have to wait for another day. And um, yeah, thanks so much to all three of you for all of your information, for your sort of catching enthusiasm and passion for wildlife and birds. And uh, been great to talk to you. Thank you. Our guests today on Coastal Conversations were Doug Hitchcock, staff naturalist at Maine Audubon, Jeff Wells, vice president for boreal conservation at National Audubon, and Brent Pease, assistant professor of wildlife conservation and management at Southern Illinois University. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a 